Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, November 8th. We begin with the latest from the COP26 climate conference in Europe. We catch up with Simon Dyer from the Pembina Institute, who's attending the sessions in Scotland this week. And we asked Simon about the Pembina Institute's involvement at the conference and what impact, realistically, Canada can make against climate change on the global scale. When we talk about the issue of cybercrime, it's generally large corporations, government institutions and banks that are the target of online criminals. But... That trend is changing. We speak with Adam Evans, Chief Information Security Officer with RBC, who explains why cyber criminals are now focusing their attention on small and medium-sized Canadian businesses. We've all heard the term SAD or Seasonal Affective Disorder, but how much do you know about it? And could you be suffering from SAD and not even realize? We discuss it with Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. And finally, with Remembrance Day just a few short days away, we focus on the resources available to the veterans in our city, including Calgary's Veterans Food Bank. We speak with the food bank's operation manager, Charles Redeker, about the demand this year and the unique challenges faced by veterans who are having trouble making ends meet. Well, COP26, the climate conference, continues this week in Glasgow, uh, Glasgow, and our next guest is at the conference representing an Alberta-based clean energy think tank, the Pembina Institute. Simon Dyer is the Dep- uh, Deputy Executive Director, and he joins us now. Uh, good morning to you, Simon. Good morning, Andy. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for taking the time. We appreciate it. Uh, well, for those uh, who don't know the name Pembina, let's talk about the Pembina Institute, what you folks do, and, and how you got involved with COP26. Sure. Well, Pembina is uh, um, Canada's uh, clean energy think tank, founded in Drayton Valley 35 years ago, and we work on all kinds of clean energy solutions, oil and gas, uh, climate change. So uh, we always track these international conferences. I'm lucky enough to be observing uh, this year. It's a very interesting one this time around, Simon, for sure. And a lot of people are quite critical, particularly from here in Alberta. So your thoughts on, you know, the seriousness of the discussion around climate change and what needs to be done here in our province particularly? Well, yeah, this is a big one. There are 40,000 delegates here from nearly 200 countries. So it's the biggest event in the UK since the London Olympics. There are negotiators from uh, countries uh, um, agreeing on the, uh, the rules that will guide energy de- development around the world. There are industry here, there's environmentalists and there's labor groups and indigenous communities. So uh, it's, a, it's a big deal. We're six years on from the Paris Agreement when countries agreed to reduce emissions. And uh, coming together this time, the expectation is that standards are going to get stricter. Uh, there are going to be investments in climate finance. And uh, a big change this time, as you're seeing, you know, with Mark Carney, uh, $130 trillion of investors are now saying they're going to um, require climate uh, action for their portfolios. So it's, uh, it's a big deal. It's, uh, it's surprising and a bit disappointing that the government of Alberta isn't represented uh, here. But uh, there's, there's momentum here like I've never seen before. I think this is uh, an economic issue now and things are uh, obviously action is never enough with but, but progress is definitely being made and i think what's different this time around is that uh, um, industry is really starting to get behind these solutions speaking with simon dyer of the pembina institute like, like you said as uh, simon action is never uh, sorry like kind of the words are never enough we have to put into action and we've heard a few times over the past couple of weeks underscoring the importance of this particular conference saying that you know this is it this is the the last exit if you will is that cliche or is that the feeling that you're getting from the conference uh, that this is perhaps the most important one in the history of, of the uh, climate uh, Yeah, I mean, obviously, as, uh, as we run out of time, they get more and more important. But this is certainly uh, 
the most significant COP since Paris uh, six years ago. And I mean, the good news is that uh, progress is being made during the first week. There have been a flurry of announcements from different uh, uh, countries. Uh, India set forward with a net zero pledge. That's something that's never happened before. Many countries, including Canada, have committed to reduce methane by 75%. And the number of countries, uh, including Canada, that have agreed to phase out uh, coal continues to, to grow. So uh, it was an assessment by the International Energy Agency that said, based on these pledges, if they're fully implemented, and of course that's the big if, we're on track to 1.8 degrees of warming. So that's for the first time we actually have a trajectory here that's less than that two-degree threshold. Now, there's still lots to be done. We've got to make sure we implement those policies and business has to do its part. But uh, it feels like uh, it feels like there's momentum, yes. Simon, your thoughts about the fact that people say, you know, these decisions really, you know, cut the, cut the knees out from our energy industry, particularly affecting us here in Alberta. But there are members of the oil and gas industry, the energy industry from our province that are in Scotland. Are there not representing and, and agreeing that something needs to be done? Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, there's great, good representation from the oil and gas industry. And it, it is actually interesting, though, uh, once you're sort of outside of uh, Alberta, the conversation here is very much focused on recognizing that uh, there is going to be a decline in fossil fuels and we potentially need to phase out fossil fuels as well. So, I mean, that's not a... Uh, I don't think that's any specific criticism of Alberta, but the recognition if we're going to make the the reductions we need to get to 1.5 degrees, we're expecting to see 80% less oil use uh, in the world in the next 30 years. So uh, clearly uh, it's in Alberta's interest to demonstrate that we can deliver the cleanest product possible in that, uh, you know, in, in that declining market. And at the same time, recognize we do really have to start thinking about uh, alternative industries, of course, you know, the massive, uh, massive increases in renewable energy deployment around the world and Alberta's doing some good work there. Uh, there are potential, of course, for uh, zero and low carbon fuels like hydrogen, where Alberta obviously had some big announcements about that last week as well. So, I mean, there is an energy transition taking place and, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a business transition and, if, I mean, anyone in Alberta thinks there isn't a, you know, a, a global trajectory to move away from fossil fuels, I think uh, we, need to, we need to wake up because uh, these things are moving very fast. Simon, something we've discussed in the media, and I find it a little disheartening from my position, and again, I'm not in the same position you're in, is the limited participation between, uh, you know, superpowers like China and Russia, for example, and thinking, you know, without them on board, what can we do? It does seem, again, from my position, like David versus Goliath. Is, is it considered that things can still be effective without those two very much buying in those two countries? Yeah, well, I mean, they are signatories to the Paris Agreement, and they, I mean, they have delegations here, even though their uh, their, their heads of state did not participate uh, last uh, last week. So they're certainly at the at the conversations. Uh, Canada has a lot of clout here. Obviously, we're not uh, we're not a China or the U.S., but uh, out of those 197 countries, with a with a tenth biggest uh, emitter, so we're in the we're in the top ten. So our our perspective carries some. Uh, some uh, some clout, but obviously it's going to involve a solution from uh, all the all the big players. And I said the uh, the commitments that India made to, to achieve net zero and massively wrap up its uh, renewable uh, energy, uh, the commitments that China made uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago to stop financing coal uh, overseas. Uh, I mean, China's the you know the big, world's biggest market for renewable uh, renewables and uh, electric vehicles, for instance. So uh, I mean, there's even though there's, you know, the challenges around targets and such, there's work, uh, there's work happening there. And I mean, in many ways, bringing it back to Alberta, uh, Alberta doesn't actually have a, a climate target or a net zero target them, themselves. So we're actually, uh, you know, we're not actually keeping up with some of our 
potential competitors uh, there globally. And Canada's goals are lofty. And, you know, as you talked about it, how does it really hold sway as to what we want to do here in our country? Because we can't force any of the other countries to do what they want. And let's face it, we know we're not doing a transition anytime soon. Yes, it needs to be talked about, but it's not happening tomorrow. So the, the goals that we have as a country, is it really impactful to other countries who maybe don't look at it as, as being so important that it work, be worked on right away? Yeah, I mean, so Canada's uh, enhanced na- uh, nationally determined contribution, or NDC, is to reduce emissions uh, 40 to 45 percent uh, below uh, 2005 levels by 2030. So that's only in that's in nine years uh, nine years time, and uh, our emissions are pretty flat. We haven't actually started making the the, the reductions that we need to uh, that we need to see. As it relates to other countries, by no means is, does Canada have the strongest target was sort of in the middle of the pack in terms of what other countries are committing to and i mean i think it's uh you know we need to stop sort of just framing this as a, you know a sort of an environmental obligation and, and start thinking of this more as a, an economic uh opportunity and an imperative right the investment dollars are going to follow those countries that are uh, have the environment to support you know that the clean energy transition right so i think it's uh it's in Canada's interest to, you know, reduce its emissions and support uh, uh, new and emerging industries and technologies as, as quickly as possible because that, that, that's where the market's going. Simon, thank you for your time and thanks for the update this morning. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much. That is Simon Dyer, Deputy Executive Director of the Pembina Institute. Nearly half of Canada's small business owners anticipate falling victim to cybercrime in the next year. That's according to a new poll from RBC. Joining us to talk about cybercrime and how to protect your business is Adam Evans, Chief Information Security Officer with RBC. Good morning to you, Adam. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, too. Thanks for having me. That's kind of a, a sad and a bit scary stat, isn't it, that half of business owners think they're going to be victims? It really shows how prevalent cybercrime is these days, doesn't it? Absolutely. So, you know, part of the reason that we did this survey is to really understand and and hear the voice of the small business uh, and understand, you know, more importantly, what they're worried about with regards to the kinds of risks or threats that are targeting their businesses. And obviously, you know, as we did the survey, we went out across Canada, uh, 3,000 Canadians involved in it and and over 400 businesses. Um, And, you know, the the overwhelming, um, you know, theme in this particular uh, survey and the responses that we got was that there are, uh, you know, half of the businesses out there are concerned about cybercrime and what that means to their businesses, uh, specifically, you know, in the next 12 months are expecting to become victims of cybercrime. So, as you know, as we go through these, these, um, you know, the digitization of businesses and, and moving more and more services online, this is the new digital man, uh, business landscape that we're going to be operating in, and, and this, these are the new kinds of threats that all businesses, small, medium, and large, have to have to worry about. And Adam, you know, they say that knowledge is king, and according to the results of your survey, it appears that many business owners uh, don't feel they're that knowledgeable when it comes to cybercrime. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, part of this um, initiative is to really start the conversation and and start to educate you know, small, medium-sized businesses or individuals about cybercrime and the implications of what it means to them. Um, you know, 24% of our respondents felt uh, that they were knowledgeable. But what was really interesting in the survey that came back was, um, you know, a, a large number of these participants in the survey were 
um, you know, focused in on very specific threats, things like viruses and malware, but the threat landscape is much broader than that. And being knowledgeable, preparing yourself for this crisis event, you know, these cyber attacks that are happening, um, because it's a matter of when it happens, not if it happens. And that knowledge and the skills and the preparedness is going to go a long way for small, medium-sized businesses to protect themselves, you know, in the coming years, as, as I said, as we go through this technological or this digitization of our businesses. And Adam, I'd imagine, you know, most businesses don't have a whole lot of extra cash to throw around, so they're likely handling cybersecurity by themselves, I suspect. Is there or are there things that a business can do to protect themselves, or or is it as really as simple as having to go outside for help? No, it's a great question. So, you know, the small and medium-sized businesses, I, you know, as you aptly pointed out, Sue, this does not have to be an expensive endeavor for small, medium-sized businesses. They do not necessarily have the resources of large institutions. And the first part of it is really understanding what you're trying to protect. As a small and medium-sized business, is it your intellectual property? Is it your customer bases? What are those information assets that you're really trying to protect as an organization? And then sitting down and developing a plan with, you know, your, the, the right people in your organization, your, your information technology departments, your non-IT functions. What are the things that you're trying to do to protect these really sensitive information assets that, quite frankly, um, can impact the viability of your business if you don't do an adequate job? And then understanding, okay, so we've got some gaps in our abilities. What can we use to augment some of those um, those skills or knowledge to protect these informa- uh, information assets properly? And then there's lots of great resources online. RBC has a, has a great cyber portal. It's rbc.com slash cyber. Lots of great information in there with regards to small, medium-sized business and the common threats and tactics that we see and use. But there's also the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity, and there's a lot of really great information there for small, medium-sized businesses to educate themselves. And I think the first piece of this is recognizing they need to be an active participant in protecting themselves and then starting to take those steps to prepare and train and build their knowledge around this threat landscape and, and the kinds of things that they will encounter in the coming years. Adam, I'm wondering the effect that the pandemic may have had in the sense that so many businesses have had to increase their online presence or many who did not have one got on board. So is, is that something that, you know, by nature of the pandemic, we're seeing a lot more businesses doing business online? Absolutely. So, you know, with regards to consumers, consumers want to do more online. They're not necessarily interested in going back into bricks and mortar organizations uh, and doing their business there. And what that's forced uh, businesses to do is to accelerate their technology adoption and really change and digitize their business. And that, again, is is small, medium, and large-size organizations. And the bad guys understand that. They understand that we're shifting into more of these technology-enabled or digitized services. And they are following these trends, understanding that we're going through this rapid adoption of technology, and there's opportunity in that for threat actors to, again, target organizations, target individuals, uh, and further their cybercrime agenda. Sadly, a sign of the times. Thanks. Great information. Great tips, Adam. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much, guys. Adam Evans, Chief Information Security Officer with RBC. We've all heard the term SAD or Seasonal Affective Disorder, uh, but how much do you know about it? And could you be feeling the effects of SAD and, and not even know it? 
to discuss. We are joined by Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Good morning to you, Dr. J. Good morning. This is something you're quite familiar with. In fact, it's a topic you recently wrote in a medical publication. So, so what do we know about SAD? Well, SAD is, is a true depression, and it comes every year. So it's very scheduled or very repetitive. It, it is a true depression, and if that's, that's my biggest message more than anything else. This is not just a minor thing. Some people actually suffer moderately or even a severe depression, which could involve suicidality and death. So this can, has to be taken seriously. Dr. J, let's talk about some of the signs so that we or somebody we know and love might be suffering from SAD. Right, so, so uh, the, the features are that it occurs every winter, so fall and winter. This is the time that it starts, right here, right now. Um, I sort of joke that I'm always asked to talk about this in January, but in January, it's already, we're well into it. It comes sort of more in the fall and winter when the life cycle changes. Uh, depression is a low mood, uh, inability to experience a pleasure with activity, and has all kinds of physical features like more sleep, difficulty thinking, lack of energy, just like what you would be described as depression is the same here. In seasonal affective disorder, it's like a hibernating bear, so you, you want to eat more and just sleep all the time. Is it affect uh, different age groups, or is this something that you know you could have as a child even? Uh, it could be right across the age spectrum. So depression, just generally speaking, does is uh, uh, something which peaks out in middle life and as we get older. Uh, but kids can absolutely experience uh, depressive periods. But it is more diagnosable in adult life. But it's pretty well across the spectrum. Uh, women are more affected than men for the most part, uh, but pretty well right across the age spectrum. So can we prevent it then, Dr. J? I mean, if we know the potential is there for us to suffer from seasonal affective disorder, can we prevent it? Well, so hence my mnemonic sad lamp. So because it comes repetitively, you you can set up a schedule in advance. So that'd be the S. Can involve antidepressants if it is severe enough. Light therapy is your L uh, lifestyle. Uh, so light therapy is a topic in and of itself, but can be very, very effective here. I'm a huge believer in regular exercise. So you really ramp up the lifestyle in the fall and winter so that it's really, uh, really in good shape. The AM part of sad lamp, it could be alternative medication, uh, such as uh, fatty fish oils. I'm sure you get adequate vitamin D. The P of sad lamp psychologist or any medical practitioner who has some skills in counseling. So essentially, as fall is coming in, you start ramping up all these things to make sure they're in perfect position so that they carry you through the winter. In spring, if you're doing really, really well, you may be able to drop a few of them as you go forward. But, re, you know, so a real a schedule plan that's very meticulous uh, can go a long, long way here. I'm so glad we could uh, chat now and not in January mm-hmm. about this, exactly. uh, Dr. J. So we, we appreciate your time. Okay, you betcha. Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. And this week, Canadians will commemorate the sacrifices made by our veterans, but there's much more to be done. To talk about how we can each help, we're joined this morning by Charles Redeker, Veterans Association Food Bank Operations Manager. Good morning to you, Charles. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So how are things at the Veterans Food Bank? How big is the need right now for us to help out our vets in Calgary and beyond? Uh, the need right now is is pretty big. Um, things are definitely, uh, you know, as we're kind of coming into our second week of our our big food drive campaign, 
um, we're definitely seeing a decline in food and monetary donations um, compared to to the last two years. You know, we took a we took a big hit last year during our campaign um, as a result of COVID, and we're definitely still seeing those uh, those effects this year with our campaign. And of course, as the pandemic has gone on, um, more and more vets are reaching out for for help as well. Um, right now, we're up to we're up to helping about 750 um, individuals in the province um, and across the country. Um, and that's that's veterans, that's their you know their spouses, their children. Um, because our, our our veteran demographic has changed, mm-hmm. um, we have a lot of I shouldn't say it's changed, but it's it's become more more evident. Um, we're seeing more and more young veterans coming in looking for help. Charles, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yep. I'm just wondering, you know, for those people who maybe moved to the city and they know we have the Calgary Food Bank, and then they hear of the Veterans Association Food Bank. They might be wondering, well, why why do we have a separate one? So, if you can explain to me, uh, explain to the listeners, uh, you know, what makes it unique and why it's needed above and beyond what the Calgary Food Bank does. So, the reason that there is a veteran food bank um, comes down to veterans when when we all um, when we all joined the military, we all swore an oath to protect the country and protect the citizens of the country. Um, and for us, when we left service, we we didn't leave that that oath behind. Um, so we've heard stories of veterans going into the Calgary Food Bank, um, standing in line, seeing you know seeing a single mom with a couple of kids in tow, and turning around and walking out because they don't want to take that resource away from somebody that they swore to protect. Um, another piece of it is pride. Um, you know, vet and veterans have be, because they've been the protector. Um, they have a hard time reaching out for help. So, with the Veterans Association Food Bank, um, we are veterans helping veterans. So, when they come through the door, they're greeted by somebody else who served, somebody else who speaks that same language. And it it helps break down that barrier. It makes it easier for them to ask for help. Veterans have given so much. It's time for us to help out this week and beyond. But let's start with this week, Charles. So can we send people to the Veterans Food Bank of Calgary.ca? Is that the best place to send people to start? Our, our, the best place for them to start, our website is veteransassociationfoodbank.ca. Okay. Great stuff. Um, you know, we, we got it. We're tight for time, but we'll, we'll send people to the website for sure. Veterans Association yeah. Food Bank. Yeah. .ca. .ca. Yeah. And uh, we'll uh, do what we can over the next uh, handful of days here. Thanks so much, Charles. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. You guys have a fantastic day. You too. That is Charles Redeker, Veterans Association Food Bank Operations Manager. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.